Welcome to The Kingstonian, a podcast that profiles people who are passionate about what they do for a living, what organization they belong to, or the community they are a part of. Here is your host, Dave Cunningham. Thank you, Steve. Hello there and welcome. Before Mark Gerritsen, before Ted Hsu, and before Peter Milliken, Flora MacDonald represented Kingston and the Islands for 16 years in the House of Commons. In 1979, during Joe Clark's brief tenure as Prime Minister, she served as Secretary of State for External Affairs. But there was more to Flora than just politics. A new memoir has just been released, Flora, A Woman in a Man's World, written with Jeffrey Stevens. Jeff was a longtime Ottawa columnist for the Globe and Mail, and later the paper's managing editor. He has written books on other Canadian political players and continues with regular newspaper columns from his home base in Cambridge, Ontario. Jeff sits down to fill us in on the passions of Flora McDonald. Here is our conversation. We are here to talk about a book that has just been published mid-October, and it's a book on someone who is very iconic in Canadian politics and close to the heart of a lot of people here in Kingston and the Islands, and that's Flora McDonald. And the book is called A Woman in a Man's World. And I guess we should probably start by getting some sense as to how you and Flora first met. Oh, gosh. Um, I was a uh, young reporter, young reporter in the Parliamentary Press Gallery in Ottawa in the 60s. with the, uh, for the Globe and Mail. Um, and that was at the time when Flora was, uh, was at, uh, working at conservative headquarters, aggressive conservative headquarters. Um, and um, in April of 1966, um, she was fired from that job. She'd been there for nine years. She had effectively been running the headquarters, mm-hmm. but she had never been promoted. Uh, she had never been offered a chance to uh, be considered uh, for national uh, for a, a national director of the party. Um, she uh, had been passed over twice uh, by less, for, in the favor of less experienced men. Uh, and she'd been told, uh, look, you know, we're never going to have a woman running this. There's no point even trying. Um, and she was, as uh, though she was running the place, she was pay- paying, being paid less than some of the men who were reporting to her. Um, and she felt there was some injustice there, but she loved the work and she did it. Um, and uh, during that period, though, I mean, she uh, started there um, just about the time John Diefenbaker formed his uh, first uh, minority government in 1957. And then she was there through his big majority in 1958 and then watched him gradually lose power and follow to favor and become odder and odder, in your view, more and more paranoid, obsessed. Uh, uh, with enemies all around him, and he considered Flora to be one of them. Let's go back a little bit and talk uh, about the book, first of all, in terms of how it came to be written. And I know that you've been involved in writing biographies of other Canadian politicians or political backroom people, and they have been listed as being biographies, but this is more of a memoir, correct? This is this is a memoir, um, and I can tell you how it started. Um in the early, oh, about 2004, I guess, um, I had finished off, finished writing a book on Dalton Camp. Um, and I was looking around for something interesting to do. 
And it always struck me that uh, Flora McDonald really had a story that needed to be told. Um, mm. I had known her, as I said, since, uh, I guess, 1966. Um, so I approached her and said, look, this is a good story to be told. Uh, you know, you came into Parliament in 1972 as the only woman uh, in, a, in a conservative caucus of 102 people, you and 101 men, uh, you know, the only one. Uh, you became the Canada's first uh, female foreign minister. Uh, you became the first woman to try to run for the leadership of the conservative party. Uh, you know, there's a good story there. And you dedicate, you basically de dedicated your life to promoting the cause of women in public life and in private life, uh, corporate sector or what have you. And uh, so I said, uh, you know, uh, I think it's a story to be told. And so we started start talking about me writing her biography. Um, but as we started interviews and got into it, it became pretty clear to both of us that it would be a more effective story if it were done in her own words. So we decided to do the, the memoir format. Um, and she, we did it by uh, basically, uh, I would uh, go from Cambridge, Ontario, where I live, uh, uh, to Ottawa, and uh, for a couple of days at a time and tape interviews with her, go to the archives with her, look at her papers, thousands and thousands of papers from her years in politics. Um, and then I'd go home to Cambridge and I would uh, uh, transcribe the, uh, the uh, interviews and, uh, and uh, go through it carefully and draft chapters. And then I would send chapters off to her. Uh, and I must say that Flora is absolutely meticulous I went through seven drafts of some chapters before she was satisfied that they were correct and accurate and so on. So uh, that's, uh, that's how it started. And uh, that was also at the time when she was getting deeply involved in Afghanistan. And uh, she was in Afghanistan a lot of the time and wasn't available. And when she was in Canada, she was out raising money across the country to support her Future Generations Canada, the, the teaching institute that she founded to work, in, uh, to work with her in, uh, in Afghanistan. And so it was hard to get her. This was a slow, slow process. Uh, and uh, I guess it was about two thirds, two thirds done maybe when she, when she died in uh, 2015. Yeah. And uh, uh, I thought that was the end of it. But I can tell you after that how it came about. But that's basically how it, was, how it started. Now, you label her as being an adventurer, a politician, and a humanitarian. Right. And I'd like to try and touch base on all three. But I think we'll start with the political aspect of her life. And she grew up in Nova Scotia and went to secretarial school. Right. And I'd like to know uh, how she got involved in politics to start with. Well, uh, her, uh, her father was a strong, uh, strong conservative. Um, he uh, uh, used to take her to conservative meetings. Flora was the only one of his children who had much interest in politics. She was intensely interested. And he took her to a lot of uh, conservative meetings. And uh, along the way, uh, along the way, one day when they were walking uh, along the street in North Sydney, they bumped into this sort of odd-looking fellow in a colorless sort of suit and uh, was sort of really shy guy. Uh, and they started talking to him. And he was Bob Stanfield, and he had just been elected leader of the Provincial Conservative Party. And her father, after that meeting, shook his head and said, "You know, there's no hope for us with this guy." <laughs> Uh, at any rate, uh, uh, Flora got involved and uh, with a local candidate uh, in their area who was a conservative candidate. And uh, uh, the guy didn't win, uh, but she went out and, and learned some of the ropes of, uh, you know, on the street campaigning, uh, getting out the vote and all that stuff. And uh, in the course of that, she got 
more and more exposure uh, to Bob Stanfield and he became quite taken with him. And he, she understood that he had some of the same values that she did. He was a, very much a progressive, more than a conservative. Uh, he was a strong supporter of women's rights. Um, and he had all the right instincts about uh, the role of government in helping people and not sort of holding them back. Now, she went to work in his office, correct? At the provincial level? No, she didn't. Start with? Uh, she okay. um, she uh, worked in that, that, that one campaign. Um, and then the, she started working in successive provincial election campaigns, um, in which uh, every time there was a provincial election, Dalton Camp would come back down to the Maritimes. And uh, there are people like Brian Mulroney would show up uh, campaigning. And uh, she, uh, she worked with them uh, in, those, uh, in those campaigns, provincial election campaigns. Uh, and then in uh, 1960, uh, 1957, um, after, uh, after the, uh, the Diefenbaker, uh, about the time of the Baker minority, uh, she, uh, she was looking for a job. She'd been working with the, uh, with the bank of Montreal, bank of Nova Scotia, uh, in, uh, in, in, well, in North Sydney first and then Halifax. And, uh, and, uh, she, what she really wanted to do was not work in a bank. She didn't really want to work in politics, not as a career. And what she really wanted to do was to travel, get out. Uh, and one, that's one reason why she worked for the bank, because she could get transferred to different uh, places. Uh, at any rate, she had this urge to travel. And so she went to Ottawa one day. Uh, she had applied to the Department of External Affairs. Uh, and she had an interview coming up, taken in as a junior person in the department. And she thought she could work her way up to something where she could get some travel. Uh, and uh, she had some time to kill in Ottawa before that appointment. So she, she was wandering along some of the streets south of uh, south of the Parliament buildings, and she came across this funny old building called uh, Brack, Bracken House, which is a conservative national headquarters, named after a previous, uh, or one of their uh, former uh, national uh, national leaders, uh, John Bracken. And uh, and she said, well, you know, conservative, I'm a conservative. I'll just go in and tell them there's another conservative in town. And she went in, and as luck would have it, uh, they were looking for somebody. Uh, and she was interviewed by a woman who seemed very impressive, but in fact was basically the receptionist. Um, and they offered her a job. She said, "Well, you know, take take one a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush." You know, and didn't didn't go to the external affairs interview. She took the job at conservative headquarters, and uh, and she was just she was smarter than most of the people there, and uh, and and probably more ambitious and more determined. And uh, she uh, gradually assumed more responsibility there. Um, they were glad to have somebody who liked to do a lot of work, and she did. Now, initially, she and John Diefenbaker did get along, correct? Because she went to work in his office at one point. Yes. She wasn't in his office, but uh, she worked very much with him uh, from National Headquarters. National Headquarters really has three functions. One is, uh, yes, to serve the leader. Um, one is to serve members of parliament and their relations with their constituents. The other is... Uh, Oh my gosh! Uh, oh, serve the caucus. Uh, help the caucus members uh, deal with the membership at large mm -hmm. of the party, and uh, and and do what you can with assist the leader. And uh, she loved Ethan Baker at the beginning, and she was quite taken with him. And, the, and she was quite overcome by the results of the '57 election. She was wonderful, and uh, and then she '58 uh, uh, his big victory, uh, and it turned sour after that. She thought because Ethan Baker, she thought became. Uh, less uh, less open to people, less open to the public, and more uh, 
convinced that, the, that he was the person who had registered the victory. And Flora and some of the others uh, thought that actually, if the party had stayed with George mm -hmm. Drew for one more election, they probably would have won it. Uh, but anyway, they even Baker won it. But uh, she started getting uneasy yeah. when she saw how power went to his head uh, and how he didn't talk to people anymore. And he said, you know, if I stop and talk to this person, I'll have to talk to everybody. I'm prime minister. I can't do that. When I was looking through some of the names that came up when I was doing a bit of research on your book and uh, giving some thought to the approach I would take, a lot of names kept coming up that I had forgotten about. And uh, now I'm a little younger than you, but not that much younger. But I do remember Dalton Camp's name and the conflict that ensued between he and Mr. Diefenbaker, one particular point. Um, what was the premise behind that conflict? How did that all begin between those two individuals? Uh, well, Dalton Camp um, had become increasingly concerned about Diefenbaker and the way he had changed after he got power. Um, he, um, he felt, well, Dalton's, Dalton was somebody who believed in the party and believed that the party, uh, that the leader was a creation of the party, not the party, a creation of the leader. Uh, and he got concerned more as time went on. Then there was the revolt within the uh, Diefenbaker caucus in the, after the, uh, after the 60, uh, 65 election. Um, and a number of members resigned, people like George Drew and Davy Fulton left the cabinet and, uh, uh, Pierre Sevigny, what he was worth, um, they, uh, battle lines got drawn within the party. Uh, and, and, and Dalton Camp tried to sort of keep the peace in the party for quite a while, but feared his responsibility as national, as, as a national president of the party to uh, try to hold, hold them together. Uh, and, um, it didn't, uh, it didn't work. And, uh, as uh, he said, as Camp said later, you know, the thing that really turned him on and launched, got, ignited his campaign against Stephen Baker was when he fired Flora McDonald for no reason. Um, he knew, Camp knew that this, something was likely to happen. And he went on vacation to Eleuthera. Um, and before he went, he had sent a message through to Stephen uh, Baker's office and, if, uh, and to Jim Johnson, who was then the national director of the party, that if anything happened to Flora, while he was gone, it would be a declaration of war. Well, two days after he left, they fired him. And Camp said, well, that was it. Yeah. Basically, that was it. And, and uh, they started the, uh, the organization and uh, the campaign to uh, turn the annual, we used to call annual meeting, which is held every two years, doing so things in politics. Uh, it's a whole, it's really a policy convention. They to take the, to turn that one in the fall of 66 into a, uh, a leadership test. And they did that. and. Uh, the test was uh, could Dalton Camp get reelected uh, national national president of the party, or if Diefenbaker put up a candidate with the Diefenbaker candidate. Diefenbaker put up a very strong candidate, uh, uh, and Camp very close, but Camp did beat yeah. him. And then they passed a resolution calling for a leadership convention, and that uh, was held in September of '67 at Maple Leaf Gardens, their first great uh, convention in my experience, and in Canada, and uh, and uh, Diefenbaker ran. But ran very badly, uh, and uh, they ended up with the uh, candidate that uh, Camp had uh, was supporting, and Flora, which was Bob Stanfield, the national leader of the party at that point. I'm interested to know at some particular point when Flora got fired, she ended up at Queens. 
Uh, now, yes. what drew her to Kingston and to Queens at that time? Do you know? Yes, uh, after she uh, after she left um, uh, national headquarters, uh, she wanted to get a break, and she went off on a cruise uh, in the Caribbean on one of the ships which Canada had donated to the new uh, uh, country of uh, Trinidad and Tobago, um, which didn't last long, um, but they Canada had, devoted, had, had donated two ships. And she was down there, she wanted to take a cruise on one of them. And uh, also on that cruise was uh, uh, Professor Dr. Corey, who was the president uh, at that time of uh, Queens and his wife. Uh, and Flora got to know them uh, and became very friendly. Um, and also uh, she was had also met and knew uh, John Mizell, mm -hmm. who had been working on a, uh, on a book on, uh, on the 57 election. Uh, and, and I guess the subsequent, uh, probably the 68 as well, that the conservatives had uh, given him a, an office at national headquarters uh, to work while he was researching his book, and Florida had gotten to know him there. Uh, and he was the head of the political science department at, at Queens. So anyway, um, she met the Corys, and she got back, and she had, didn't have a job, and she had some offers, various things. But uh, the, uh, uh, John uh, Corey got in touch with her, or myself, and I'm not sure which one uh, this time, uh, but to offer a job um, as sort of the executive secretary uh, or well, you know, I guess probably executive secretary to Mizell in the political science department, basically the administrative person yeah. in political science, and also uh, also for uh, the uh, a, uh, the new uh, new uh, sociology department which they're forming. Um, so anyway, she took on uh, on that job and, and worked there for a number of years. And while she was in Kingston, she became the first woman. Uh, to be a student, become a student at the uh, at the Canadian Forces uh, Military College at, uh, in, in Kingston, um, and uh, she got to know people. Um, she uh, was asked to take over a heritage organization there to uh, try to one of the things they tried to save the Grand Theatre and did in Kingston. Um, they then fought off developers to preserve the waterfront. Uh, there's open public access. So what 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 happened in Toronto with the waterfront now, where you can't even see the lake? Uh, uh, didn't happen in case it was kept. Um, so she was involved in these causes. Um, she got involved with the prison for women um, and trying to uh, get it closed. The old prison for women. Uh, she saw how badly the women were treated there. Uh, she got involved and uh, and once a week uh, she put together a group of people to go and visit with the women and they'd organize events uh, for them at the at the prison. So she got pretty well known yeah. in the in the in the community. Um, and then while she was off with the um, uh, the military college uh, on their annual tour of foreign countries. Uh, she got a message from some of her friends in the political science department. They put her name in for the conservative nomination for the election of uh, 1972. Uh, and uh, she uh, uh, agreed, uh, came back. Um, she said that she was, uh, I think she was in class uh, uh, when the nomination Meeting started. She quickly got there. Anyway, she won the nomination quite uh, quite easily, uh, and then she uh, she didn't really expect to win the election. That had been a liberal seat for a long time, and it had been held by Edgar Benson, who was Minister of Finance, uh, uh, previously. Um, but he had not re he had retired, so it was basically an empty liberal seat. Uh, and uh, she went out for dinner the night of the election, and they figured that's going to be a long evening, a very good meal. And they hadn't even had their first course yet. And the waitress came along and said, "You've been elected." <laughs> Amazed, <laughs> I was astonished, and uh, 
So she uh, she did that, and uh, uh, and she went to, she went up to uh, Ottawa, and uh, and she said she 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 been on Parma Hill hundreds and hundreds of times when she was at, at headquarters and uh, knew everybody there basically. Uh, and she said she, her hand was shaking so badly she was so nervous she didn't think she could even sign the register when she was sworn in. Uh, anyway, she was sworn in and the. Uh, Skipping ahead a four. few years when she decides to take a run for the leadership of the PC party. So that was in what, 76? It was in 1976. Yeah. Um, I mean, she uh, said she would have been most happy if Sandfield had stayed on. But uh, Sandfield had lost three elections to Trudeau in 68, 72, and 74. Uh, and it was time. And uh, so she, uh, she thought, who was available? Well, she looked at some of the people who had been one of the guys who wanted to be a leader uh, were, you know, retreads from the Diefenbaker government, older guys, George Ease and uh, Wallace McCutcheon. Uh, there was, uh, well, Davy Fulton, um, Elvin Hamilton, Jack Horner, um, a bunch of people. And she said, well, she couldn't see any of them as a leader. She didn't think any of them were as, uh, were as progressive as she thought they should be. None of them were as progressive as, as Stanfield. Uh, and she said she didn't think that any of them were as good as she was. So she decided to run, and she became the second uh, second candidate to declare. She wanted to be get in early, so it wouldn't be, she wouldn't be looked at on as an afterthought. If the party said, "Oh, we really should have a woman running yeah. too," she wanted to get in first early. So she, she was beaten to the post a little bit by Hugh Grafty, who's been a gadfly from Quebec. Uh, but he declared that she was very quickly uh, she very quickly declared and. Uh, and she ran a very good campaign, um, you know, and, uh, but, uh, you know, promised to vote for her and didn't. Yeah. And, uh, the floor and that uh, particular leadership convention saw Joe Clark win the leadership. Yes. And then he was... Joe Clark... Go ahead. So I was going to say, Joe, Joe Clark originally was supporting for In her original organization meetings of her campaign, he, he was there. And then he decided to run for himself. Um, there was always a deal, an understanding, I guess, between Flora and Joe Clark that, the, that if one had to had to back out or was dropped from the ballot, uh, the, the support would go to the other. So it was always knowing that. Uh, and she, but she was convinced that she would have more votes than Joe Clark. Now, when didn't. Joe Clark uh, became prime minister, he appointed Flora as uh, one of the first uh, secretaries of state for external affairs in the world. Uh, and being a female. Right, yeah. female. Um, tell us about some of the things that she accomplished in her short tenure in that position because his government didn't last very long. No, it sure did. Um, well, one of the things that she, uh, she, she succeeded in doing was, uh, was uh, bringing in um, somewhere between 60 and 80,000 Vietnamese refugees um, following the Vietnam War. Uh, Canada on a per capita basis, accepted far more Vietnamese refugees than any other country. Uh, the country got the Nansen Medal from the United Nations for its conspicuous service and humanitarian cause for that effort, national effort to bring in, bring in the, uh, the refugees. Um, and she, uh, she proposed that. Uh, it started with, I think, 40,000 was the original target, and it gradually increased to about 80,000. And the deal became that... Uh, uh, any group of citizens uh, or municipalities that wanted to bring in refugees, the federal government would match, match that and, and, and match money yeah. as well. Uh, so they got up and uh, by one count, by the time it was over, after she was out of office, it got to about 100,000 uh, refugees, which would be quite, uh, 
quite remarkable. So she did that, um, you know, over a lot of opposition within the, within the conservative uh, caucus, uh, because the conservatives were, they were not overly happy about uh, about refugees at that time. The, the Liberal Party was known as the party that, that uh, favored immigration, and the conservatives were not in those yeah. days. Um, so she did that. The other thing, you know, one of the other things was uh, when uh, in <clears throat> When in 1979, uh, um, when the when the, the uh, Shah of, of Iran was overthrown by the Ayatollah Khomeini, um, the uh, the crowd stormed the American embassy in, in Tehran, and uh, and took most of the people uh, Americans there hostage, took them as prisoners. Several escaped. There were six initially, and I think the seventh later on um, escaped and found their way to the Canadian. Embassy, um, and uh, Laura says that you know she was, she, uh, was uh, wakened up one early one morning, um, and uh, was uh, was told, uh, "Could you please come to your parliamentary office as quickly as you can?" Um, she got there, and uh, and the officials from external affairs were there and said, "We have this message from the ambassador, Mr. Taylor, in Tehran. They, we have these Americans. You know, uh, he wants to offer them." Refuge, will you agree? Of course, yes, I certainly will. But I have to clear it with the prime minister. So she uh, she uh, went to the House of Commons. It was a Friday morning, so the House was sitting in the morning. Her seat was next to Joe Clark's. So he said, "I need to see you when this is over. Question period is over." And they stayed behind, and she told him. And uh, Clark said, "Absolutely, it's your ball. You carry it. Mm -hmm. It was her, her job to bring it in." So she got on to uh, and got a hold of the contacted the White House and, uh, and told them what was going on, and uh, and then uh, they worked on plans to um, to to get the hostages out, and it took quite a bit of time. Um, the uh, original Canadian plan put forward uh, uh, was not too acceptable to the uh, uh, CIA. Uh, it was a, the Canadian plan, which she had thought was really quite good, was to uh, disguise these uh, American refugees and as uh, uh, as members of uh, of the People from the oil industry who were in uh, in in Iran looking for contracts and so on, um, and that uh, probably would have worked. But the Americans were fancier, and they uh, so they decided to set it up as a as a film production operation based out of California. So on. anyway, that's what they what they ended up uh, doing. Um, but uh, the key to the thing was to get them out was to uh, get them Canadian passports. Well, you really can't issue Canadian passports to people who aren't Canadian, except. Under exceptional circumstances, the Minister of Foreign Affairs or External Affairs can authorize the issue of, uh, of uh, extraordinary passports, but it requires cabinet approval to do so. Well, she uh, she got got all the information and got the uh, and uh, and uh, went to Joe Clark and said, "Yeah, we'll do this, and I'll put it on the uh, cabinet agenda." But I'm going to put it on the very last item on the agenda, and uh, and he knew what he was doing, and the cabinet was. Anxious to get out after a long cabinet meeting, and he got the last item, and uh, and Joe Clark said, "Oh, oh, just wait. This one, uh, there's one other item here from uh, from Flora. It's pretty routine. Can we just pass it?" And he said, "Oh yeah, let's pass it." So the cabinet approved it without actually knowing what it was, and then she had the passports. And the only problem they had with the passports um, was that the CIA uh, buggered up the excuse me buggered up the dates of the passport to show the people uh, basically trying to leave the country before they uh, before they'd arrived. <laughs> Uh, and as the uh, passports were, were written in Farsi, which uh, 
which nobody in external affairs seemed, uh, seemed to speak. Uh, but uh, when the passports were sent from Ottawa to the Canadian Embassy in Tehran, uh, they did know us, and uh, they said, ah, ah, you can't do that. And they had to quickly alter the documents so that they, these people could get out, and they did. Now, let's, uh, I don't want to run out of time here on the program because we haven't covered <laughs> much of the other areas that we want to focus on. But in 1988, she lost her uh, re-election bid to Peter Milliken, who went on to become Speaker of the House uh, after several years in the House of Commons. Uh, after she lost that particular election, what did she decide to do uh, with her life after that? Well, she didn't really know uh, what she wanted to do. Um, it, it, normally, in a situation like this, uh, when uh, a cabinet minister is defeated, but the government's reelected, as it was in this case, and, and Brian Mulroney was still prime minister, prime minister again, usually uh, the government takes care of defeated ministers. Uh, well, Ray Natishan uh, was a minister of energy, mines and resources in the uh, in the first uh, Mulroney cabinet, and uh, from in Saskatoon. Uh, and uh, the uh, and uh, Brian Mulroney made him uh, governor general. Uh, that was his reward. Um, everybody, pretty well, everybody got something. Some board, a number of them went to the Senate, sort of thing. Uh, Flora wasn't offered anything, um, and that was probably because she had uh, difficult relations with Mulroney for, for some years. And uh, mm -hmm. and she said she wasn't going to ask him for anything, and she didn't expect him to ask him anything. Uh, Joe Clark. Uh, uh, as became became the minister of foreign affairs, uh, and uh, he uh, he was prepared to uh, uh, to uh, appoint Flora high commissioner in India, uh, which she loved India, um, but uh, she didn't want to be a high commissioner because then you've got a ceremonial office and you're following all the rules and the guidelines of uh, what you have to do as a as a national representative there, and she wanted to be able to ha and have her own input and. Uh, and get involved in causes that interested her, and make change in her own way. Yeah. And, uh, and so she she uh, basically uh, was not approached by Joe Clark, but let, him, let, let it be known that she was not interested at any rate. And then she just sort of waited, and uh, uh, she got uh, she was invited uh, uh, at, at one point to go to Nam Namibia uh, as a as a uh, an election observer. Um, she uh, went uh, with Care Canada uh, to. Uh, uh, refugee camps in uh, in Africa. So she started doing that sort of work, and she uh, uh, got a freelance uh, arrangement with uh, World Vision uh, for a program called North South, which aired I think about five times a year. And it was just before I went out to some uh, hard hard done by part of the world and uh, and uh, talked to people there and uh, and put together a, a program uh, about the part of the world, and they did. Uh, well, they did at refugee camps and in various places and uh, and, uh, and things of that sort. Um, and uh, it, it, it got her the travel that she liked. Uh, it gave her some income. Um, and while she was doing that, she got involved uh, in other causes as well, not just uh, World Vision, but uh, in, other, in other things. And uh, she, did, she did quite a lot of work with, uh, with Care Canada. And then she got into, uh, into some of the other, uh, you know, humanitarian causes that were going on, both Canadian and uh, and uh, and foreign. How did she get into Afghanistan? How did that all come about? Uh, she got into, into Afghanistan because she was um, involved with a group called um, Future Generations International, um, which was uh, operated by a chap by the name of Daniel Taylor. 
an American. Um, she she met Donald uh, Daniel Taylor um, in India at a reception, and she was uh, she was there uh, uh, with one of her uh, one of her uh, groups, and uh, and uh, and uh, she so they started talking about uh, Tibet, and uh, and Daniel Taylor was uh, was going to Tibet the, the following month, as I recall, and. Uh, and Flora said, oh, my God, Tibet, you know, the land of my dreams. She'd read all the books about Tibet and how exciting that was, you know, the top of the world and all that stuff. And she was really excited. And, and Daniel Taylor said, well, if you're serious, uh, you know, be in, uh, be in, uh, I forgot where it was, I think it was in Nepal, they were meeting. Anyway, if you be there next month and I'll take you. And so she did. I said, why not? She said, why not? So she's, what, 55 years old or something there? What else? So uh, went off and, uh, and did that. Um, and and uh, toured uh, and uh, and toured uh, uh, Tibet within that time, and then went back a number of other times to uh, Tibet. Um, and then uh, she got uh, um, as she got more involved with uh, with Daniel Taylor and the Future Generations uh, operation, uh, she got involved in Tibet uh, in the uh, dealing with the, uh, the big the, the big rivers that ran out off the Tibetan plateau uh, down into uh, into South Asia. The Mekong River and the Ganges, some of the others, um, and she uh, uh, became quite uh, quite immersed in that kind of work. And then they, they then they Daniel Taylor moved into on into Afghanistan and start uh, doing some uh, some work there, basically working with people in the villages, high altitude work. It's all mountain mm -hmm. type stuff. And she started with with him there, um, and then uh, he uh, his organization decided to pull out. Uh, and, and concentrate on uh, on other areas, and uh, she stayed and, and started her own uh, organization to to work in Afghanistan. Uh, she got. Is this when the Russians were there, or after that? Uh, no, the Taliban was just okay. The Taliban was just uh, just being driven out then, and uh, and uh, she. Uh, I guess when she first, well, the very first time she went in, yeah, the Taliban was in was still in power, but then. The, uh, they by the time she got really immersed there, the Taliban was out, but uh, uh, like a constant threat. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, she was working in uh, in Bamian uh, province uh, in, in the in the high uh, high mountains in the in the middle, and that was the area where they had the place where they had that huge statue of the Buddha carved in the mountain, and uh, the Buddhists uh, the uh, Taliban came and blew it up, which was a mm -hmm. very dangerous sort of place. But she her focus was on mountain villages. Uh, basically, uh, dealing with women in those villages who were illiterate, by and large, a lot of them widowed because of the various wars that they went through, including the wars with the Taliban. Uh, and she uh, was teaching the, you know, they were running uh, courses to teach them to read and to write, teaching elements of agriculture, child care, and, and that sort of stuff. And that became her preoccupation. And she said uh, she didn't stay in five star hotels anymore or any hotels. She uh, was, uh, stayed in the the huts of the of the villagers and uh, and uh, played played with their children and uh, and worked with them uh, where they were and uh, you know quite often sleeping in a, a sleeping bag on somebody's floor. She was a woman way ahead of her time. A way ahead of her time and really ahead of the uh, of the women's movement as we know it today. Mm -hmm. I mean, she in a sense was a Canadian uh, precursor of the uh, Me Too movement, I suppose. Interesting that we are talking about her as we record this particular conversation at the beginning of October. 
Uh, we are waiting for the next cabinet to come out, out of Ottawa with the anticipated gender equality approach to the cabinet, going back to the days when Flora was the only woman right. in a man's world. Interesting lady. All the best to you. And uh, thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Dave. Jeff Stevens, who worked with Ms. McDonald on her memoir, Flora, A Woman in a Man's World. And that book is now available. This episode was recorded in early October 2021 using Zoom. The theme music for the podcast is Stasis Oasis, written and performed by Kingston musician Tim Aylesworth. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions about any of the episodes, please send a note to the Kingstonian Podcast at gmail.com. For details on upcoming guests, follow us on Facebook. The Kingstonian Podcast is hosted by Dave Cunningham and produced in Kingston, Ontario, Canada.